0: So we're in the midst of a series on the Minor Prophets, and uh, an often neglected uh, section of Scripture, the last 12 books of the Old Testament, Uh, and um, so we're not going to do all of them, but uh, we are, uh, we're now in the last week of Jonah, uh, Jonah chapter 4. Next week, we're going to start Joel, uh, Joel uh, next week, and then Habakkuk, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Haggai, and Malachi. So that'll take us through uh, basically the rest of this school year to, uh, up to summer. Uh, and basically the main interpretive principle of the minor prophets, or any prophet for that matter, uh, is that the word of the Lord comes to the prophet, and then the prophet speaks the word to the people. Uh, If you take that lens and as you read the prophets, you're going to be far ahead. It's not some cryptic thing that we've got to figure out. God speaks to a prophet. The the prophet basically takes that to the people. And so in Jonah, there's not much foretelling, the idea of predicting the future. And, And like most prophets, he warns against coming judgment from God and a call to repentance. Uh, Joel has a little bit more of the future stuff, uh, um, but the primary audience of any prophets writing and speaking is the audience right in front of him. Don't miss that. We often try to make prophets, you know, necessarily about something. They are speaking to the audience that is right in front of them. Jonah is speaking to the people of Nineveh. uh, And it's written uh, in that day. It's written to those people, but yet it is for us. It wasn't written to us. It was written to them for us. Uh, That might keep us out of the ditch at times in trying to understand the prophets. So here we are in Jonah 4. Jonah has just gone to Nineveh, one of the most powerful cities in the ancient world uh, at this time, and he preaches uh, a warning of God's judgment unless they turn to the Lord, and they do so, and God uh, relents from sending disaster. Hallelujah! Hallelujah! a whole city has come and turned to the lord that's how we would respond right that's not how jonah did so let's see what how did jonah respond let's stand and just submit ourselves to the word of god jonah chapter 4 starting in verse 1 but it displeased jonah exceedingly and he was angry and he prayed to the Lord and said, "O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die" Than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade until he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah, said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who did not know their right, or do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray. God, uh, be in our midst, and uh, would you, by the Spirit, speak powerfully to us? God, we know that your word is powerful powerful and effective it comes out by the power of the spirit and accomplishes much and so father uh, for those who profess uh, faith in Christ God help us to see ourselves help us to see how we have in a sense tried to fashion you uh, in our image Uh, father for those who have never bowed their knee to Jesus God would today be the day of salvation God, that you would do amazing work in our midst, and we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. And please be seated. Have you ever had that experience where you uh, just perceive something completely? incorrectly, right? You're thinking it's one way, and then in reality, it's something else totally different, you know? Coming out of the Christmas season, my mom's favorite movie, yes, I'm talking to you, mom, is A Christmas Story. <laughs> Actually, she despises the movie, but uh, uh, us, um, we, we love that movie, you know? Little Ralphie, a nine-year-old boy who was hoping for the Red Ryder BB gun, and they weren't going to get it for him because you'll shoot your eye out, right? But before that, before Christmas morning, he was a boy full of hopes and dreams, right? Uh, of what the world had to offer, what Christmas had to offer. Uh, this whole, whole year leading up to this story, he had been drinking Ovaltine. I've never had any, but it looks gross. But he had finally received his long-awaited Little Orphan Annie Secret Society decoder pen. And he received it in the mail. He ran in and he decoded his first message. And he finds out only that it is a crummy commercial telling him to be sure to drink more Ovaltine, right? And what does he do? He thought that he had something and he he realized that what he was thinking was not reality at all. And he was displeased with what he had received that's a Christmas story. Let's take, it more, uh, let's take it closer to home and think of people's thoughts of marriage before they're married, right? It follows a similar pattern. <laughs> You know, I, uh, actually, our girls were watching this wedding video yesterday, and, um, and and I was listening to it, and I just couldn't help but chuckle because it was this amazing cinematography with this triumphant music and the voiceover of the pastor set to this music. It was unbelievable. It was idyllic, and it's idyllic until reality hits. You know, the reality of marriage Yes, it is God's design for this world. It is the backbone of society. If you look at any study on, uh, on, on families and the effect of families on children, it is not even close. There is nothing else more foundational to society than marriage. Yet... It is not idyllic. It is not a triumphal music playing over the top of the pastor speaking over your marriage. At times, it's an endurance race. If not at times, a grueling endurance race, then at times there is that idyllic music. But that's more kind of every once in a while than the day-to-day reality of marriage. It is not a fairy tale, but it is God's good design for this world. Right? It's at these points when reality confronts the illusions that we thought were true, that God pushes against those things. And when that happens, often people are quite depressed. The same can be said of what we think about God. That oftentimes our conception of God is not the God of the Bible, Blaise Pascal uh, said, and some attribute this to Voltaire, Mark Twain had his own version of the quote, but regardless of who said it first, uh, it was said something like God made man in his own image, and man returned the favor. That God made man in the image of God and man said, hey, let's make God in our image because we would much rather a God that we make rather than the living God, the true God of this world. Often we try to make God into whatever we want him to be and when we do, we miss the heart of God. So here's something, that if the God that you believe in and serve if God is not pressing on your sensibilities at times, if God doesn't make you uh, somewhat puzzled at times, if you don't struggle with God, you may have invented your own rather than the living God who rules over this world. Because it's here that we see Jonah. We see Jonah kind of responding to God, and he doesn't like what he sees. In a sense, he was Ralphie. He he thought God was going to do something a certain way, and when God doesn't match his expectations, he falls off the cliff. Nineveh's repentance, and God relenting from sending disaster, right on. But that's not what Jonah does. In verse 1 it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Uh, there, there's this word uh, that, that is, it's basically the Hebrew word for evil that is in uh, this verse, and you, know, you could literally translate it, and, and it's an idiom, so it's, uh, but it was a literal transition. could be, it was evil to Jonah with great evil that God relented from sending disaster, that Nineveh repented and responded to God. That's staggering. This is the prophet. This is the prophet of God speaking the good news of warning, uh, you know, to these people that they come back. You know, Jonah had constructed a God of his own thinking, and he was angry when the living God, the true God, went against his thoughts, and in that, he misses God's character Really, he misses God's heart of grace because uh, in, this, in this passage, as we kind of are going to unfold it, we, we see God's character all over the pages here. And, and what do we see is in verse 2, kind of like halfway through, Jonah, it's interesting, he's praying. So we have the rebellious kind of wayward prophet who still prays. So you could say, all right, he, he at least is praying, He's not complaining about God, he's complaining to God, and he says, I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He sees the character of God, he sees the God's heart of grace showing up, and where is this a quote from? So, when he was saying, you know, your gracious God's uh, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, where does that first show up on the pages of Scripture? Is Exodus 34. Okay? Exodus 34 is kind of the trailing narrative after God's people, Israel, they say they're in the wilderness and they put all their gold together and ask Aaron to fashion for them the golden calf. So they serve and worship an idol while Moses is up on the mountain. So that's Exodus 32. God is going to move and send disaster on his people. Moses intercedes for the people and God relents. And then then Moses wants to see God and see his glory. Uh, In a sense, God allows him to see his back. And as God passes by, This is what we hear of the character of God. That the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So when, when Jonah is speaking to God, and in a sense, kind of, yes, he has a right understanding of the character of God, at least in characteristics, he's not saying this is, is praiseworthy. In a sense, he's actually accusing God of being gracious. It's an accusation not something of praise, but he's going to forgive Nineveh, but didn't he do the same exact thing for Israel? Because in all of this, we see God's heart of grace. Because uh, just think of all the ways that God displays grace in this book. So grace is God's undeserved favor. So think about it, that God is a patient God. God's long-suffering, kind of the old-school way of translating patience. Uh, He he exposes the idols of people's hearts. When when Jonah is kind of going off the rails, he asks questions of Jonah, he saves these people, He's, uh, he sanctifies people, makes them more and more uh, like uh, the image of Christ. He forgives sin, he, re- he forgives rebellious disobedience, he frees people from themselves. He's not passively waiting around, and he pursues Jonah in Jonah's divided heart. That's a staggering list, because if you think about it, you know, where does, where does grace show up is, let's take one of those. Let's take patience. You know, Jonah disregards God's command, runs in the opposite direction. What does God do? Does he just smite him? It's a good Old Testament word. No, he sends a storm. He sends a great fish to swallow Jonah. He has Jonah hang out for three days in the belly of the fish. He commands Jonah a second time. This time Jonah goes... He gives Nineveh 40 days uh, before sending calamity, calamity. Jonah sits outside. He builds a structure for himself. And God interacts with Jonah. God listens to Jonah mouth off. God sends a plant. God sends a worm to eat the plant. He listens to Jonah mouth off again. All the time, God in his grace being patient. I love the fact that Jonah is in the Bible because oftentimes we take these biblical characters and it's like, be like Daniel, be like Moses, and it's like, I'm like Jonah, (laughs) you know? So uh, it's just an honest depiction where God is saying, my people, yes, they're saved by grace, but they sure act like uh, they haven't figured it out at all patience is in God's character, because when we see the patience of God and the character of God, we see, and it's in quotes, that Jonah has this sense of deserved grace. Those two phrases, those two words can't go together, right? Grace is undeserved, Uh, But yet, he thinks that somehow uh, there is a deserving in the people of God. He's missing it. Because the Assyrians, people in Nineveh, they're outside of grace. You know, and and really, he doesn't even want grace for them. Uh, You know, maybe even to the point that God was Jonah's tool to get back at the Assyrians that he was using God for his own means rather than uh, thinking uh, that God was the one who was on the throne. So why do I say deserved is is in verse two, the first part, you know, he prayed to the Lord, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? (laughs) This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you were a gracious God. And he recounts God's character Again, and that's when God comes and says, Do you do well to be angry? Other versions are translated, it's kind of a weird phrase in the Hebrew. Uh, you know, do you have good reason to be angry? The NIV translates, Is it right that you are angry about these things? It begs for a no, but it seems that he feels that the Ninevites are outside of God's grace and he's angry. That they benefited from God's goodness at all. It's as if he and his people, you know, they deserved these things. But the Ninevites, well, they should get what is coming to them. And in all of this, he misses what oftentimes I think God's people miss. Is that God's people still need God's grace. Because what did Nineveh need? these people that are outside of the will of God, evil rising up before God, known for their violence. What did they need? They needed God's grace, which would lead to their salvation. Well, what did Jonah need? He didn't need to be saved. He didn't need to be brought into the family of God. He needed the grace of God to transform him yet again, to make him more and more after the image of God. Of God. Grace begins the life of, of a believer, like Nineveh needed, but it also def- defines the ongoing life of a believer, where God makes us more like Himself. In a sense, it's really easy for God's people to feel like we've arrived somehow. And Jonah just might expose that. Like, if that feeling is anywhere in your thinking, and in my thinking, and let me say, it probably is. God's putting it on full display because what do we see in Jonah? We see that he needs things that still need to be refined and transformed. He complains about God's character. Verse 3, doesn't feel like life is worth living now that God doesn't match his expectations. Verse five, he made a shade for himself, and I love this phrase, till he should see what would become of the city. You can just like see him outside like with popcorn, right? Like, all right, here comes Sodom and Gomorrah all over again. And, uh, you know, I did what I was supposed to do, and now let's see some fire come down. Like, what in the world? He needed God's pursuit just as much as the Ninevites. I don't know if you caught it or not, but the songs that we sang are all about the heart and the pursuit of God. Your goodness is running after me, O love that will not let me go. Christ who took on flesh, he was scorned by the ones he came to save. It's this pursuit of God, not just an in initial salvation but it's the pursuit of God for me and you on an ongoing basis because we're probably more like Jonah than we care to admit because this is how God pursued him. It's kind of like he doesn't just give Jonah more information. Jonah, you're wrong. Change your thinking. He takes him on a field trip, so to speak. He's going to have Jonah experience the waywardness of his thinking and his heart. Verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed a plant. So that word appointed is the same word for he appointed a wind and brought a storm. He appoints a plant. He, he's going to appoint a worm. He's going to appoint a strong hot wind. So God is all over this story. This is a story about God more than Jonah. That's the trick, right? Now the Lord God appointed a plant. It made it come up over Jonah so that it would be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Okay, He was mad because this city didn't get what was coming to them, but he was glad about the plant that would shade his head. Verse 7. Now, uh, but when, when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, and so it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die and said, it's better for me to die than live. Verse 9. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry? It's the same question he asked earlier, but this time, angry for the plant? And he said, Jonah said, yes, I do well to be angry angry enough to die. So as, as Jonah is needing to be refined and needing to be transformed, is definitely still in need of God's grace, what does God do? He gives him something that it says that he was exceedingly happy about. He loved it. I love this plant. I love this shade. I mean, it's probably 110 degrees in the, the, you know, in the desert, right? This is, you know, so, and not many trees. So shade is no joke, right? And so it comes over him, he is loving it, and then God takes it away. Why? To expose the heart of Jonah. That God would not let Jonah stay in his uh, elitist place where he doesn't need God's grace and he has everything figured out. That God would press in. God would give him something that he was actually delighting in and then remove it. It's only a day old. Like, how attached could he become to this plant? But yet, when God takes it away, he wants to die again. Life is not worth Living, God is pursuing Jonah's heart. And I would bet God is pursuing yours in some very unique ways. It might not be a preacher standing in front of you and and, and saying something. It might be God taking you on a field trip. Having you feel the effect of losing something that you love. So that you might see that that became the idol of your heart. Because in all of this, God's heart of grace, we see God's heart for all people. Now, this is commonly the main emphasis of Jonah 4. Uh, And and this is where it gets pretty stark, is because God's heart for all people is revealed by the idol of Jonah's heart. That seems odd, but it's it's actually going to come to light. God's heart for all people is revealed by the idol of Jonah's heart. Because what does Jonah think about? He calls, in in a sense, he thinks of these people as those people. Those people who are out there. Those people that he hates. Those people that he just can't stand. Those people who are going to get what's coming to him. Those people who deserve the wrath of God. Those people. Just kind of, he is now insulated from these people. And what's Jonah's idol? Really, uh, th- there is some debate as to what's going on. I, I really move with the idea um, of many commentators that it's really this national identity of Jonah as an Israelite and the Assyrians as the big bad people against uh, the nation of Israel. That Israel was God's chosen people. They were special. Some, and then that turns into them feeling elitist, them feeling like a nationalistic culture and they have the moral high ground of everybody else around them. Assyria is those people. Tim Keller presses into this and and he he speaks of uh, that his natural and good love for his own people had become racism because he wanted the annihilation of his enemies, not the rehabilitation of his enemies. In a sense, he keeps going. His belief that he was a superior kind of person and his country was a superior kind of country to Assyria, his self-righteousness and his pride would enable him to condemn the greatest city of the world to complete death, and he was able to rationalize it as patriotism and self-denial. We are pretty skilled at justifying our waywardness, you know, Jonah cared more about his own comfort than these people. He distanced himself from them and wanted to watch their demise. No heart for them. And this is where God comes to him and says, uh, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, did not make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished. Do you hear that? God is saying, you did this. You pity the plant. And then he comes in verse 11. Should I not pity Nineveh, the great city. Jonah, you're concerned about your plant and your comfort. I am concerned about people and where they are. You know, the 120,000 persons is debated all over. Is he talking about little infants? Is he talking about people who are just ignorant of their spiritual condition? You could go 50-50 on commentators. Regardless, it's a lot of people who are deserving of the judgment of God and are somewhat unknowing in their state, you know, how do you respond to hurting or broken people around you? Think about that a second. Because Jonah is sitting here like, these people don't deserve it. How do you respond to people that don't have their act together? Maybe even ask a different way. How do you respond to people who don't have their act together, especially the people that you think should? How do you think about them? How do you treat them? You know, they should know better, like I do. They should simply make better choices, like me. Do you hear the arrogance in in that thinking? It's as if we have it figured out, Because God's grace has come and transformed our heart and our thinking and and God has brought us to a new place and then we internalize that as if we got there ourselves. Because why don't other people do what I do? Isn't it just fascinating how easily it is for us to find ourselves in judgment? So who are those people to you? Who are the people that you find yourself distancing yourself from, you might not be asking God to bring down fire on them, but you wouldn't mind if they got it, if they got there what they deserved. Who are those people in your heart? Maybe God's saying, if you understood my grace to you, you might not be so desiring of my judgment to fall on them. You know, it could be uh, just... Another culture. It could be another race. It could be some kids at your school. It could be the mean girls at the lunchroom. Uh, it's just interesting, all the people that we find ourselves casting judgment on, hoping and wishing that God would move against them. But what's wild is in all of this, Jonah's idol shows up. He's angry enough to die. When something that we hold dear— or essentials taken away. We feel like we want to die. Life's not worth living anymore. It's the very definition of an idol. So is the problem that Jonah is an elite uh, culturalist or the moral high ground or that he might be a racist, is that the big problem? No. That is the symptom of a much larger problem. The symptom is that he is holding something other than the living God as what he thinks, if he has it, life is worth living. Now, this might not be your idol, but I would surmise that the human heart invents idols to serve other than the living God. What is it for you that if it was taken away, you would feel like life was not worth living? Because that's what Jonah is saying. You know, uh, he's saying, you know, he's even pleading that God would take his life, his idol of his national heritage, and, and his high ground in the rest of the world. If God's going to bless Assyria, then Israel uh, isn't what he thought it was. If God's not going to support his natural ide- or national identity— Then wait a second. God's not playing according to his rules. And when God opposes his idol, goodbye, God, the idol wins. It's wild that he's praying to the living God, the source of all life, and then he says, I have no reason to live. Do you get the irony of that? But yet, can you relate? That that. oftentimes when life is difficult, even praying to the living God, we are betraying our own belief that he is the source of life. God brings the plant, God removes the plant, and then he brings this east wind that in the desert, uh, it, it's... Uh, Man, it's Sirocco. I don't even know what that is. But uh, is this thing in the, mid, in the Near East where temperatures rise dramatically and this wind blows in. Uh, and it's constant, extreme, it's hot, uh, it's particles everywhere. It makes people delirious. Like even to where people committing crimes during this wind... They actually aren't punished as severely because like truly it changes people's thinking. Most likely that's what God brings up against Jonah and he does that to expose Jonah's idol and Jonah's heart. God's people need God's grace just as much as wayward, evil Nineveh. God's people need God's grace just as much as the world around us. Because it's an interesting thing that the the book of Jonah ends with a question. Only one other book ends with a question and it's Nahum. Another book about Nineveh. (laughs) Nahum's about judgment. Jonah is about mercy. And it ends with a question. So why would God end a book with a question? Am I not, you know, should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? Why would God end his book with a question? Because it's written about historical events, but it is written to the people of Israel. Kind of saying, people of God, are you like Jonah? People of God, are you the ones who think that you have made it and other people haven't? That you don't need grace anymore? That you have uh, survived, or that you have Uh, really risen to that place? Are you blind just like Jonah was? So if you've grown up around the church, this book is for you. It was written to Israel, but it's written for us to understand the heart of arrogance that can rise up among God's people. If you do not know the love of God, in a sense, this book, that that your story of what uh, could come uh, from uh, God's grace to Nineveh, this is for you as well. Are you resting on your uh, your own ability, your own life, your own talent, your own arrangement of things, or are you resting on the grace of God? Because God promises to come and bring his grace to people who have completely walked in the opposite direction, but then also people who profess faith in Christ and still miss it. God's grace abounds. Let's pray. Father, uh, take your word, I pray by the Spirit, God, that you would have us see ourselves. Have us see ourselves so that then we could see your heart of grace in your heart for all people. God, yes, you move and you uh, Yes, you uh, call us your own, but yet, God, that doesn't mean that your heart doesn't beat uh, for uh, people around us. And so, Father, I pray that that we would see uh, your grace just abound in our own lives so that we would see your grace heal those around us. And so, Father, um, I pray that you would uh, do an amazing work, that your heart of mercy that your heart for people would be what we leave with. What sort of God are you? Father, I pray that you'd show us that. In Christ's name, amen.